This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome everybody. It's great, great to be here. Um, I'm going to give you a brief introduction to uh, uh, the BRCA genes and um, some insights into why people with mutations get more cancers than people who don't have mutations, and what we're doing to think about new treatments for those in which cancer does arise. And we'll get on later to think about new preventative measures. I was involved in finding the the BRCA2 gene in 1995. And really, that was for me, that was an accidental thing. I got involved in in finding the gene, even though I wasn't working in that area, Um, and really, it was a, a, a really interesting time. We went from finding the gene to testing women uh, with a family history of breast and ovary cancer within a few weeks. And within, actually, uh, a month of finding the gene, there was a woman who had a strong family history. She was going to have a, a, pre- a preventative surgery, have her breast removed. She was tested. The mutation was found in her family, but she didn't have it. And therefore, it was an immediate translation from genetics into um, a really favorable outcome. But for her, that wasn't the most important thing. It was that her two daughters couldn't have inherited a mutation that she didn't have. Um, And subsequently, uh, my lab and many throughout the world tried to understand why having this one change in your entire genome, you have 3,000 million bits of information in your genome, You need to change one of those to have this very high risk of of cancer. So why is it? And what we figured out after a while was that cells that have this mutation aren't very good at fixing breaks that happen in DNA. And it turns out your DNA is quite fragile in every cell of your body. And when you have this defect, you don't fix the DNA when it gets broken. And it gets broken all the time, thousands of times a day. And it's not that you completely lose the ability to fix the DNA. You're just slightly less good at doing it. And that causes mutations, which causes cancer. So that's the underlying reason why people with BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations are at higher risk. So what can we do about that? And for a long time, we didn't really know how to use that information because these cells carry a defect. Could we fix that defect? Um, We couldn't really make a drug to do that, and it was really problematic. And then the the kind of revelation moment came when we thought about, let's not try and fix it, let's make it worse. These cells in the tumor that have this DNA repair defect, inability to fix their DNA, have a weakness. Let's exploit that weakness by attacking another pathway that causes DNA repair. Make them worse at doing something they're already bad at. And this turned out to be a very productive approach. We went from a laboratory experiment showing that this could work, where drugs called PARP inhibitors could kill cells that have the BRCA mutation extremely readily in a laboratory, into a clinical trial within about six months. And a few months after that, we started to see patients responding to this treatment. Patients in a phase one clinical trial that had everything that modern medicine could give them suddenly were responding very strongly to this treatment. Unfortunately, then it took from that time about nine years, but we got there in the end. Uh, The FDA approved this treatment for hereditary cancer of the ovary uh, in in 2014, right at the end of 2014, which means a 20-year trajectory from discovery of the gene to an approved treatment, which is terrible. Um, There are many reasons why it takes so long. But we now have the first treatment specifically for a hereditary cancer. And it's the first new treatment for ovary cancer since 2006. So now um, the horizons have much expanded. We believe that there are positive trial results now in breast cancer with BRCA mutations. And likely there will be an approval by the FDA within the next year. And also we believe that although... Uh, we, we know about, we test for BRCA mutations. We know they're not a, a big fraction of breast cancer, and we thought not a big fraction of ovary cancer. But now it turns out that in ovary cancer, it's much more common than we have previously thought. 
And our recommendation now is that every patient with ovary cancer should be tested for BRCA mutation because often we find mutations in those that don't have family history or at least don't qualify for testing through existing guidelines. And moreover, it now transpires that 25% of advanced prostate cancer, the lethal form of prostate cancer, is also defective in BRCA1 or 2. And that means the treatment that we designed to treat a rarish form of hereditary cancer is now applicable to many thousands of people with uh, advanced cancer, and likely it will become the standard of care in, in prostate cancer. So this is the very beginning. It's being used in advanced disease and clearly um, prevents progression of disease. As we use the drugs earlier, hopefully we'll get to a curative situation. And the combination, the hope for the future, is the combination of these type of approaches with things like immunotherapy could really uh, push the boundaries of uh, both preventing the disease progressing, but also we strongly believe that this could lead to a cure in, in many cases. So that's the current state of the, of the science in terms of what we understand about how BRCA mutations cause cancer and what we're thinking about therapeutics. Great, thank you. And then Dr. Munster is also going to say a few words. <clears throat> well, thank you for having me, actually. So to, today, today actually marks four years to my dad's um, surgery to remove his uh, now very small pancreatic cancer. And he's still alive with metastatic pancreatic cancer after four years. And the only reason why we could do this is because my father actually carries a BRCA2 mutation. And they, when he was 78 and he presented with very little symptoms with the very advanced uh, pancreatic cancer involving his, his small bowels and uh, wrapping itself around the, the blood vessels, we brought him to a surgeon. He says, like, he kindly looked at us and said, sorry, but there's nothing I can do. I would advise you put your affairs in order because most patients like you live about six months. Now, mind you, this was in 2013. And we just found out that he had a BRCA mutation because I carried a BRCA mutation. And we had no PARP inhibitors at that time for pancreatic cancer. But we have something very close because what the, what the research of Dr. Ashworth and others also showed us, these tumors are actually really sensitive to some type of chemotherapy such as carboplatin or oxaliplatin. So I went to Switzerland. I'm convinced an oncologist that he need to get, give my elderly, 78-year-old father, three different types of chemotherapy. And uh, I can tell you I did not make a lot of friends during the time of chemotherapy <laughs> with, my friend, with my father. But um, he, he is uh, alive and, and with us and still gives me a hard time. And, but this really was the beginning of uh, when Dr. Ashworth just about came here and I knew I had a BRCA2 mutation and he was instrumental in cloning BRCA2. I felt like this was a, a match made in heaven and we will push this research forward that, we, that my father is not an exception, that patients like my father and everyone else with BRCA mutation and other mutations really get the right treatment and get a home where they get treated appropriately. Yes, it may be out of the box, and yes, it may be not what the common oncologist may do for everybody, but every breakthrough in oncology starts with one example that's exceptional, and, and I'm hoping in five, ten years, none of our patients will be an exception, and everyone will be living a meaningful life and be, be the, the standard. And so this is... What we can only do in a team, we can't do this alone. So this needs a team. I, I need to be able to send my patients who we just take the ovaries out to Dr. Goldman to make sure that you don't have uh, horrendous side effects from, from, uh, from a nephrectomy. We need imager who diagnose our patients. Where she go? Who can diagnose uh, patients early. We really need a team, and this is what we're all about at, UNU, at UCSF. It's like we have a team to approach a patient in a comprehensive manner, and I hope that uh, you get a little bit of a sense that this is what our mission is. Thank you. So starting back with Dr. Ashworth and Dr. Munster, very basic question that we didn't get that you guys didn't cover. What does BRCA stand for? 
We originally thought these were breast cancer genes. This is dating back to the 1990s uh, when Mary Claire King first provided evidence that there was hereditary cancer. It's ironic now that um, until the 1990s, people didn't really believe that cancer ran in families, and particularly with breast cancer because it's so common anyway. It's hard actually to prove that what you see in families is actually to do with um, inheritance and is not just a, a, a random cluster. And so we originally thought they were breast cancer genes, i.e. breast cancer BRCA. Uh, but then we found out there was a very considerable risk of ovarian cancer and prostate cancer in men and pancreas cancer. Uh, but the name stuck, and that was it. Okay. And so you just mentioned breast cancer, ovarian, uh, pancreatic, and prostate. Are there other cancers that BRCA is linked to? Yeah, I, I think BRCA is... These are the most common cancers, but BRCA genes are cancer enabler in many levels. So we see we see other a smattering of other tumors. If you look carefully, in most tumors there's a small subset of those who have a BRCA mutation. So, and that what if someone has a gallbladder tumor and we look for a BRCA mutation, we would offer such a person either different chemotherapy or a PARP inhibitor. So it's actually important to not do the knowledge to expand. And I think that's why we think our, our BRCA center is, is so relevant to really bring this together. This is not a silo. This is not an ovarian cancer, a breast cancer. Because... Every, this is a familial cancer syndrome, so that means many family members may be involved. Now, are there certain populations that are more likely to have this mutation? Stand it back and forward. <laughs> so we, um, we know quite a bit about the Ashkenazi Jewish uh, community and the, the prevalence of BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. So it's probably a minimum of 2% of those of Ashkenazi and, and Sephardic uh, Jewish ancestry uh, who carry a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. It's probably about 0.2% in most other populations. But to be fair, we don't really know um, much beyond the Caucasian Western communities. There haven't been deep studies, and it's something that badly needs to be done. And we are, we are through the BRCA Center, trying to investigate broader populations to see what the prevalence is. But I think what we really want to drive at is, like, I had no reason to believe that I had a BRCA mutation because, you know, my father is, is a single child, doesn't have any sisters. There was no family history. So I think this has such... Knowing that you have a, a BRCA gene or BRCA gene has such implication on treatment and family member that it's really important. So I'm a big proponent of, of general testing. I know not everyone is, um, is behind that, but I think the, the test is fairly inexpensive, is easily available. And, and how we, accurate is it? Uh, so I think the problem is when we find the gene, it's accurate that we find the gene. There's many, many genes that are not associated with, with cancer. So they, there's it's a subgroup that's be called variant of unknown significance. They may cause cancer, they may not cause cancer. So they, they are cancers that have everyone in the fa- in, who has it in the family has cancers. There are many genes in the family where only one person has it. So I think the penetrance of tumors linked to the gene, that's where a lot of research is uh, ongoing. Okay. And then just to follow up on that, how does someone go about getting tested to see if they have the BRCA gene or not? Any, there's many, many ways of doing this. The easiest uh, is to um, come to the call the BRCA center and ask how you get tested. So we make this very easy. So we can you can go and use the commercial tests such as Invite Color. The, it's an online uh, test. It comes as a tube. You spit in a tube. Two or three weeks later, you get a result. It is not ideal in in. To, to do this at home is not ideal to just do this and then sit at home and you find yourself like, oh, I have a mutation. I think it would be better if this were a little bit in, a, in an environment where actually someone is then guide you through what that actually means. Great. Thank you. Now, Dr. Goldman, you're next in my line of fire. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what your role is for patients with BRCA? Uh, sure. So I see um, 
both healthy BRCA patients and BRCA patients who've already been diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. In patients who've not been diagnosed, I see them to counsel them about preventative and screening options um, for both breast and uh, ovarian cancer. I work closely with our breast center, and um, oftentimes they're seen in the breast center for their breast uh, prevention um, and I'll talk to them about things like birth control pills, which can be, which are preventative for ovarian cancer, length of time that they should be on uh, birth control pills. There's been some interesting new data suggesting that um, ovarian cancer may begin in the tubes. And so when childbearing is complete or if childbearing isn't an issue, we are talking to uh, BRCA mutation carriers about uh, removing the tubes. For people who've been diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, who have a BRCA mutation and need to have their ovaries out, we talk about timing. So um, one of the things that's unique here at UCSF is um, that we try to coordinate surgery so people don't have to undergo multiple procedures and can have one anesthesia. So oftentimes if someone is having a mastectomy, one of the common types of reconstruction that they get is expanders, and then they go back to the OR later to get an implant exchange. And frequently we will do remove the ovaries at the time of implant exchange. And nowadays when they're doing these implant exchange, they do fat grafting to make the breast look more natural. And we can actually use the same incisions for the removing the ovaries as they use for fat grafting. So a lot of what I do is talking to people about uh, prevention, screening, and then probably the biggest part of my job is uh, managing... Um, Side effects. So for people who have surgical menopause, either uh, whether that's they are healthy mutation carriers who undergo uh, oophorectomy, um, we talk to them about how do you uh, manage the menopausal symptoms. When you have surgical menopause, the symptoms of menopause tend to be more severe than with natural menopause because you go from normal menstrual functioning to boom right into menopause where you don't have this gradual decline. So oftentimes the symptoms are more severe. So we talk to people about the use of hormones, pros and cons, safety of that. Um, if someone's had breast cancer and uh, hormones are contraindicated, um, we'll talk to them about um, other options that they have for treating their menopausal symptoms, also deal a lot with sexual dysfunction and vaginal dryness, any sort of quality of life issue uh, that's affected by people either undergoing um, uh, earlier menopause from surgical oophorectomy, from being a healthy mutation carrier, or being a breast cancer patient who gets chemotherapy-induced menopause and then finds out that they're a BRCA carrier. So that's certainly a big part of what I do. Great. Thank you. Now, Dr. Greenwood, what's your role in radiology uh, for patients with BRCA? Uh, sure. So radiology plays a key part in screening patients uh, with BRCA for breast cancer. Uh, since it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I do want to put in a quick plug that uh, both the American College of Radiology and the Society of Breast Imaging uh, still strongly recommend annual screening starting at age 40 for uh, all women at average risk. However, patients with a BRCA gene mutation we know have a much higher lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, and we know that they tend to develop these breast cancers earlier than the average age woman. So we actually recommend for patients with a BRCA mutation to start screening with breast MRI every year at the age of 25. And why we recommend breast MRI for our patients um, is that breast MRI has been shown by multiple, multiple studies um, to be the most sensitive examination for the detection of breast cancer, and it detects breast cancers at their smallest size and at a lower stage than mammography. Um, especially in young patients who tend to have dense breasts, we know that the sensitivity of mammography is much lower in this age group. Um, and then once a patient uh, turns 30, uh, we recommend still currently starting annual screening mammography. And at UCSF, we currently recommend alternating MRI with mammography um, every six months. Um, so those are kind of our general screening guidelines and kind of what I do um, 
for in, with regards to our BRCA patients. And I just want to make a point because I don't want to forget about men. Um, so those are our recommendations for women. Um, of course, men can also carry a BRCA uh, gene mutation more commonly. Uh, the BRCA2 gene mutation uh, males will present with breast cancer. Um, but Given the very low incidence of this, we don't have any studies looking at screening in males. Um, there are case reports, of course, out there. Um, some providers do get a baseline screening mammogram in a male with a new diagnosis of a BRCA mutation. However, we don't currently recommend any imaging for screening, and that's, of course, based on just lack of evidence since the um, incidence is so low. Now, can I make a comment here? Yeah, just to because and I think this is really why why we think it's so important to screen families and and because if you have a a, a sis, if you had a sister with a, with a BRCA mutation and it says two more sister one carries the gene we would start screening her at 25 and do really intense screening but if one of the sisters in the family does not carry the gene. There's no screening needed. So there's a lot of heartache and agony saved in that, in that person. So when, when we do BRCA testing, it's not when you have a positive test, we come with a knife and, and take your breasts off. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of things we can do that is not surgical risk reduction. But, but I think the screening is so different for someone who has a mutation versus for someone who doesn't. So it is important if you know in, in a family that there's a BRCA mutation that we screen the rest of the family members. Thank you. And just one last point is we also recommend, you know, not, not everyone wants to know their BRCA status, and that's a personal decision. And so um, the American Cancer Society and American College of Radiology recommend that if you have a first-degree relative um, who has a known BRCA gene mutation but you yourself aren't tested, um, and if uh, we, we recommend the same high-risk screening with MRI for those untested patients. Can I add something, to? Absolutely. Uh, since we're all just <laughs> yeah. going back and forth. Uh, also, um, I think sort of highlighting this, I see a lot of... Um, uh, young women who have uh, BRCA gene uh, mutation in the family, and some of them may have had uh, early ovarian cancer, and um, they may be coming to us uh, to talk about uh, fertility options. And um, we now can, um, it's really important if they do have a gene mutation to really talk to them uh, early. I have a patient whose sister died in her early 30s of ovarian cancer, and she came to me in her early 20s to talk about uh, what should I do? And uh, we've talked about earlier screening uh, for her because of the uh, age of onset of her sister. And uh, we now have the ability in terms of fertility options that someone can do uh, in vitro, and they can freeze their um, eggs or freeze their embryos, and the embryos can actually be screened for BRCA. Um, and they can use that as a way to preserve their fertility and then at an earlier age, think about removing their tubes, which may decrease their risk of ovarian cancer, based on this newer data suggesting ovarian may begin in the tube. So a lot, um, I think it is really important to have a team approach and really being able to counsel uh, patients based on what's, um, what, uh, uh, what's the BRCA mutation cancers that are seen in the family and also based on the age of onset of those cancers in the family. Thank you. Now, Laura, coming to you. Um, did you know about genetic testing prior to your diagnosis? I did not. I had um, heard about it uh, probably 16 years ago when my older sister was getting ready um, to start a family. And she mentioned something, and I was in my early 20s and living in New York and said, you know, that's fine and dandy, but... Um, uh, I didn't have great health insurance, and so at the time, the test was was very expensive and, and more rare, um, so I did not um, get tested, and, and neither did my sister or anyone in my family. Um, so when I was diagnosed in November 2012 um, and found out I'm a BRCA2 carrier, um, the team here recommended that my sister and my mom get tested as well. Uh, and my sister, fortunately, tested negative. Um, she has three daughters, so we were very grateful. Uh, my mom is positive. Um, and obviously that, you know, it creates quite a conversation um, in the family. Now, were you, you were already scared. You'd just been diagnosed. But were you scared about being tested? Do you have a daughter yourself? 
I do have a daughter and a son. Um, so my son was 14 months uh, when I was diagnosed, and my daughter was four. Um, and so when I, but I also want to mention the reason I'm here tonight is just to emphasize that I'm a living example of what was just discussed. That I started traditional uh, chemo protocol, it failed. Um, about to start my third round of AC. Uh, it turned out my tumor was growing through the chemo. Um, I came to UCSF and met with uh, the oncology breast care team here, and they found a clinical drug trial for me, a PARP inhibitor, um, and it worked in six months. My tumor shrunk from 11 centimeters to 7 centimeters, um, which made me a surgical candidate. I had a simultaneous, I had a bilateral mastectomy, and at the same time, uh, my ovaries and fallopian tubes removed. And I was in medical-induced menopause um, at the age of 38. So um, just that's my story, and it just underlines what everyone's mentioned um, tonight. I'm grateful to be here. And can I just ask a follow-up? So now that you know that you have the BRCA gene, has your daughter been tested? It's something I um, talk to Dr. Ashworth about quite often, um, and we've discussed that it's you always you've said in the past 21 um, is kind of the minimum age. Um, I, you know, it's to prepare for that conversation is obviously um, going to take some planning. And I would also mention that I was very grateful, and my mother and my sister were very grateful to have the genetic counselors at UCSF. I think that's such an important part of getting tested. Um, when you asked me would I have gotten tested, yes, but I don't know what I would have done with that. I don't know. Um, obviously, it would have had significant consequences on my choices to start a family. Um, you know, it creates a lot of questions, and fertility preservation is one of those things. Um, obviously, there's a cost involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a lot of friends and in their 30s, and, and that is a real issue. You know, freezing your eggs and all of that is obviously comes with a cost. So I think from the patient perspective, um, there has to be a lot of conversation and a lot of real-world impact discussions um, before you move forward with with these choices. Great. Thank you. Not to Do you mind if I make a comment here? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I really resonate with this. It's like, you know, I have a BRCA mutation. I have a daughter. And I remember when I first was diagnosed, all I just wanted to know whether she's negative. And I really had, you know, and I, I could easily get her tested. Right? I had, I had, I had could easily, I had even had her test kit in my, in my office. And every day I looked at it and said, I'm going to do it. And then I thought, like, no, I can't do it because I couldn't keep the secret to myself. I think the, the challenge is, like, we don't do anything with the information until the girl's about 25. And it's an unbelievable burden. And uh, my daughter, who is the, do- the daughter of uh, two oncologists, is quite aware of what, and she kind of like, she told me that she, it would totally weird her out to know now. So she wants to wait until she's 22 because she wants to make good choices when she's in college. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and then Mindy, Mindy knows uh, my daughter because uh, we are neighbors. So it's like, uh, so it's you will see by the time our daughters are are of age, they will have a say in it. And I think it is important that we let our children decide whether they want to know or not. I think that's an important that's an important part. When for those who have BRCA mutation in the families, like let your children grow up to the age that they can make that decision themselves. I think it's important. And that actually leads perfectly into my next question. I would imagine. With the years between now and when your daughters are going to be 21 and 22, the advances that you're making, it's going to be a different discussion if they end up with the BRCA gene. So can you talk a little bit more about some exciting things that are going on in the research or in the treatment? (laughs) Yeah, um, I would hope that by the time they're of age that we would have much better ways of detecting disease early. I think that's the first thing that we'll see. Because these things come in stages, and the idea that we're going to wake up one day and figure out how to prevent disease that at the moment we can't cure is a bit fanciful, so it will come in stages. We'll get much better at treating the disease. Well, first of all, we'll hold it back, and people will survive a lot longer with late-stage disease. Then we'll start to cure people. Um, And at the same time, methods of detecting cancer early will become much more efficient. So cancer is only a threat if there's a threat that it will progress. If it's very early, 
it's less damaging. And if we can catch it early, we can cure people. And there's a lot of work now uh, using um, uh, things in the blood to detect cancer very early. So there's a company called Grail that are going to spend $1 billion on an experiment. And that experiment is to see in people that don't have cancer, can you detect DNA from a cancer that they don't know they have in the blood? If that experiment works, that will be a huge step forward in screening populations. And the first population that will be screened will be the BRCA population because it makes sense. The people at high risk of where you test these things are. Actually, the other population would be very heavy smokers who are also at very high risk. Can you detect cancer early in those populations? And then it will move out to the general population. So what I'd say is in these efforts, the BRCA population are the ones that are going to benefit first. If this thing can be done, and I truly believe it will be done, then this is what will happen. And then the disease will be manageable surgically by treating it very early or, or with drugs. And then the next phase will be a preventative strategy. And there are already some ways of thinking about this where uh, you take a pill of some description and you take it throughout life or intermittently, and that reduces your risk of cancer back to what the normal level is. And let's not forget that the normal level of breast cancer is one in eight, one in nine women, right? It's not nothing. Um, so every woman faces the threat of, of breast cancer. It's just in the BRCA population, we've elevated it by five or tenfold. So it's not absolute. So the aim would be to get it down to at least the, the, the regular level and hopefully to push it below that. But it's got to work also for ovary cancer, otherwise it's not really that effective because you have more chance of dying of a, an ovary cancer than you have of a breast cancer because it's less treatable. So, we, we need to, so this is the scale of the problem. So I'm not trying to be depressing about it because I truly believe that we're making huge progress. But we have to be realistic in the way that these things emerge. But I'm, I'm, I'm convinced but by the time their daughters are of the age of getting to risk, which will be the mid-20s to early uh, to 30, we will have effective preventative measures. But to pick up on that a little bit, I think we have, like, in, in business, we always talk about these five, uh, one year and five years and ten year plans. So I think the one year plan is clearly, if I had my rotters, people like Laura would not walk into my clinic with an 11-centimeter tumor because we would have known before that and screened this out, and I think that's what, what you're talking about. It's like, so that is, an, and I still see so many patients coming with big tumors, and you look at the family, and you look at their BRCA mutations, and like, we could have prevented that. That we can do now. If you go out and raise awareness from what you hear today, and make sure people get tested, and there's awareness that you could have a BRCA teen, we can do that. We can reduce suffering from people with metastatic disease, and hopefully in five years we'll have more of a handle on, on what, uh, what treatment we can use earlier on. And then hopefully at some point the, the PARP inhibitors and other drugs can be used meaningfully in, in prevention and once early detection comes along. And who knows, CRISPR is not, uh, is not uh, up for prime time, but hopefully in 20 years... We, we can eliminate uh, this mutation by either taking the gene out or not passing it on, and that's all doable. So we have an opportunity to really eliminate this mutation from the gene pool. And I may not be able to save my daughter from going through a lot of screening. I'm hoping that her daughter will never have to go through this. So we're coming towards the end of our panel, but... If there are questions from the audience, if someone could bring them to me now, it'd be, I could, could ask them. Uh, in the meantime, I did want to ask Mindy again. We've talked a lot about the, the screening recommendations for the breast. What are the screening recommendations for the ovaries? Yeah. So um, ovarian cancer um, occurs typically at a later age than uh, breast cancer. So screening begins later. So whereas for breast, screening will begin at um, 25. For uh, ovary, it's more uh, the screening begins at 30 to 35. And we begin talking to people about um, removing uh, their ovaries uh, as early as age 35 or as soon as childbearing is complete. One of the newer things, as I had mentioned, though, is talking to people 
potentially about removing their tubes earlier, and then later on at an older age, uh, removing their ovaries. So when you remove the tubes, that doesn't throw someone into menopause. When you remove the ovaries, it does. So the hope in the future is maybe we'll be able to just remove tubes, not have to remove ovaries, and not have to put people through surgical menopause and all the symptoms that go along with that. So while we're waiting for the questions, on a personal one for myself, I actually am BRCA negative, but I have a, I was diagnosed at 39. I have a sister that was diagnosed at 47, and we have a history of, of cancer. So is there a BRCA3 on the horizon? <laughs> like, <laughs> So um, there's no BRCA3, which means there's no mutation that has this very high risk, but there's a whole bunch of genes which, when they're mutated, give a moderate risk. And they do run in families. And what we're tending to do now is rather than just test for BRCA1 or BRCA2, we test for a panel of genes. And depending on which company provides it, it's another 5, 10, or 20 genes um, that if you have one of these mutations, it can give a pattern of risk that's not dissimilar to what you've, um, you've talked about. So you don't see these really extensive families. But as we've discussed, you can have a BRCA mutation and have no family history. Um, but we don't necessarily recommend that everybody who, do, who has cancer, who, who has no family history, gets tested. But if you have cancer, it makes sense to consider being tested because of that. Um, you're, you're the person who may have got the cancer because of the BRCA mutation. And I know that, Dr. Goldman, you recommend that for your patients. Being your patient, <laughs> I know that you recommend it. So, since DNA damage is ubiquitous, why does the BRCA defect preferentially cause cancer in breast and ovarian tissue? Uh, I've been asked that question every time I've given a talk since 1995, and I still don't know the answer. There's something about the tissues of the breast and the ovary, and the prostate as well, where they are responsive to hormones and. It may well be that hormonal influence on the tissue that makes them particularly uh, responsive to this DNA damage. Some tissues actually die when they have this type of damage, and that's probably a good thing. It's the tissues that survive with damaged DNA. They're, they're the ones that give you cancer. So that's probably something that's a hand-waving argument, but that's probably something to do with it. <laughs> Um, can you talk a little bit about um, some of the other genes that have recently been found to carry risk for breast cancer, and uh, when do we think about those? When do we think yes. about those? Well, that was the question, I believe. So uh, <laughs> I think now we'd recommend that uh, people have the entire panel test if, they're, if, they, if the counselor they're working with or the clinician believes they're at risk. Um, the technology has moved on a lot since the original test that was marketed by Myriad when it was $4,000 for $6,000. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't living here then. So uh, $6,000 for a test that was so-so. The test is much better now, and we can do panels of, of genes, and this can be now as low as maybe $100. It's, the BRCA test is now cheaper than the 23andMe um, test, which is somewhat... And, and our BRCA clinic yeah. is actually a hereditary cancer clinic, and it's open to anyone with ATM check, PALB2, and other cancer genes. That can, and the ATM check and PALB2, we do screen more intensively. Great. Can I make a comment? Um, I think also um, one of the benefits um, I see in my clinic is I'm seeing many people who had cancer a long time ago and uh, either wa- weren't tested or... Uh, it just wasn't thought about at that time, and now um, we can send them back. So I am sending people back uh, to our genetic counselors frequently if they have a concerning family history or they were diagnosed at a young age and weren't tested uh, uh, in the past. So I think that that's uh, really important because they are able to get these expanded panel tests now that uh, weren't available. Okay, with two more questions? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, so do we understand why there's late onset of cancer for some BRCA-positive people and early onset for others? So there are, there are multiple factors. It's not just the BRCA mutation. There's inf- all the other influences that influence cancer. 
So uh, environmental factors, the age at which you have children, how much breastfeeding you do, all influence whether you get regular breast cancer. And the same thing applies to um, BRCA-related cancer. But there's an even more complicated um, influence as well, which is there are other genes in your genome that can influence uh, when the cancer presents. So some of it is just random chance, and some of it is influenced by the, what you call your background genome. Um, and we understand relatively little about that. So some genes can combine to have a double effect and amplify the effects of the BRCA mutation. Other genes can reduce the effect of the BRCA mutation. And we need very large populations to study this. And there's some work being done, but not, not quite enough. Uh, so back to something you've talked about already, but do you think it would be meaningful to have the BRCA screening be a standard test for every woman over 25? I think so, but does not everyone feels that I way? I disagree. So, <laughs> and that's why we're on a panel. So, the, so the, question, the question is a little bit as like, what, whenever we do a test, what do, you do with the, what do we do with the answer? And, and the, the challenge for us is like, uh, the, we know that uh, there are probably families with BRCA mutation and they have no cancer. So do we introduce a significant worry and anxiety in this family when there's really no one with a cancer. Um, but for that, we would have to... The, the question always is, like, do you have enough of a family to assess your family history? If everyone in the family is, is male and dies young, it's going to be really, really difficult. My, 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 my mutation probably comes through my father. They were born in Germany. He, my father told me that none of his male relatives ever made it beyond 35 because they either died in the war or some other... Uh, causes so that's harder to assess the family. So I think we will. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I kind of agree with what Pam's just said, but it's a slightly different uh, um, emphasis. That I think if somebody's incredibly anxious that they about the risk of cancer, then maybe they should be tested. But the idea that we promote testing in populations where there's no history at the moment, I don't think we're quite there. So it, we're doing a pilot in the Ashkenazi Jewish community to see how acceptable it is to screen everybody. But there, one in 50 people or, or more are going to have the mutation. When it's one in 200, um, and sometimes we find findings that we can't interpret, then it's a bit more problematic. So I think if you don't have a family history and you're not anxious about it, then I think it's okay. Uh, I wouldn't say that we should actively promote it, but probably we wouldn't deny somebody it. But if you decide to do it, don't do it in some kind of like test that you can buy off the internet without the genetic counselor, without the support. And I'm not talking about the about the, the standardized testing companies are very solid, have genetic counseling. I'm, I'm talking about tests that uh, don't run it in a lab, in someone's lab, as a, as a reason. Don't run it in your own lab if you've got a lab. She's advising. I'm, I'm sure everybody's got a lab at home that they could do this in. No, but I mean, if you, if you do it, do it with support and so that uh, you have support if you find an answer that you were not anticipating. Yeah, that pretty much applies to everything. Yeah. 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 That is good advice in general. Uh-huh. So, Dr. Goldman, we have a question um, asking why you would recommend an oophorectomy over chemical or hormonal ovarian suppression. Right, because um, when you... So there are drugs that can be given to suppress ovarian function, but that doesn't remove ovarian tissue. So when someone has a BRCA mutation, just having that ovarian tissue uh, present, even if it's not functioning, is still at risk for cancer. So in BRCA mutation carriers, we will recommend removing the ovaries. And in fact, when we remove the ovaries in carriers, we actually cut the specimen in in a very different fashion where they do these fine millimeter slices through the tubes and ovaries where the pickup rate for finding cancer is higher. If you have a breast cancer patient who um, needs to have ovarian suppression as part of their treatment, but they're not a BRCA mutation carrier, they don't necessarily have to have their ovaries out. They uh, can just get ovarian suppression by drugs to keep the ovaries quiet. Barring some uh, still discrepancy in the literature, taking the ovaries out will reduce the risk for breast cancer for a, for a BRCA carrier. So there is, there is 
a discussion worth having, like when is the optimal time to take the ovaries up? And that actually follows directly with the next question I have. For BRCA carriers, if you have somebody between 35 and 40, do you recommend removing the ovaries on the earlier side, 35, 36, or the later side? And can you talk about the pros and cons of, of both? So, um, as I said, uh, first of all, with BRCA1, we see uh, ovarian cancer more commonly than BRCA2. Um, the standard teaching had been uh, to talk about removing the ovaries as early as age uh, 35. Um, a lot depends, I think, on the penetrance of the gene and what's in the family. I have patients that if ovarian cancer isn't seen, we sometimes will wait till 40 to 45, even though that's not standard of care. Standard of care still says to talk about removing ovaries around 35 and 40. There's a lot of health implications related to that. So the estrogen that the ovaries produces protects against heart disease and protects against bone loss. And in the general population, heart disease is the number one cause of death. So one of the questions is you're going to be saving people's lives from an awful disease like ovarian cancer, but if you remove someone's ovaries 15 years earlier than the natural age of menopause, does that mean they're going to get let's say they were never destined to get ovarian cancer and they were destined to die of a heart attack. Are they going to die of a heart attack 15 years earlier? So these are the conversations that we have. It brings up conversations about the use of hormones in healthy mutation carriers. Um, There's a lot of controversies over whether hormones prevent heart disease. Um, We know hormones are good for the bones, um, but there's a lot of... um, Issues if someone uh, um, about pros and cons of hormones. Many patients have fears about uh, using that. So I think there's a lot of um, issues that really go into that conversation, not just about reducing cancer risk, but quality of life when it comes to menopausal issues, sexual functioning, and then health implications when it comes to bone loss and heart disease. And we really struggle with the with the recommendation of removing someone's ovaries at 35. I think this is really. Uh, I think we don't have a lot of evidence that this is going to save many lives, and I think pushing it back to 40 or even 45 is probably the, the, the sweet spot is probably somewhere around 45. I would think. And so another question for Dr. Greenwood. If there's a BRCA2 positive male, can you give recommendations on screening for prostate and pancreatic cancer? Oh, for, uh, well, I don't... Yeah. I'm going to turn that over to Pam. <laughs> so so we actually, the first thing we did is when, um, when he came to me uh, thinking of uh, screening for pancreatic cancer, I uh, asked uh, a world-renowned expert in New York, and she said, like, you should take your pancreas out. <laughs> and then I asked someone else, and they said, yeah, do nothing. There's no screening. And so I was like, so we convened a meeting of the experts and trying to figure out what, is, what makes sense and what is meaningful. And it was very clear that we really struggle with what is meaningful screening for pancreatic cancer. So talking to all the experts at the universities and then a little bit outside the university, we settled on starting screening at 50 for those who are BRCA2 and BRCA1 who have a family history of pancreatic cancer. And we probably do either MRI or endoscopic ultrasound. For, for prostate cancer, the, uh, for, for prostate cancer, the discussions were even um, more ardent and uh, less focused. So I think we still have uh, uh, some ways to go to really settle, like, when do we start PSA screening and do we do digital uh, rectal exam, which is not doing it by iPad, Dr. Ashworth. You told me it was an iPad. <laughs> digital is not an iPad. <laughs> So, so, but I think what I'm trying to to get at is like it's really important, at least for me as a bracket carrier, it's really important to have a a home to go to where we have a clinic where these recommendations that are really fluid, like every year we make adjustments that, that people have a way to learn about this and get informed that we have a way of disseminating changes in practice. And the NCCN has changed their guidelines three times over the last four years. And like, so. Okay, so just one last question. and it, it, um, we, I got a lot of questions about insurance and should insurance cover bracket testing and all of that. But another question that came up is, 
Could testing positive for a, one of the BRCA mutations be considered a pre-existing condition that would then impact insurance coverage? So there, there is a clause in, uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, in insurance that you can't discriminate against uh, genetic uh, diseases. However, you know, we, we all worry about that. Um, typically, we have in my in my now twenty years in as an oncologist dealing with BRCA carriers, I've never seen anyone being denied insurance because of the mutation. Or, but you know, a political si- situation is not very stable right now when it comes to insurance. Yeah. <laughs> I try to be like politically correct. I'm English. I'm saying. I think Laura has something to say. Uh, I, yeah. just, I just wanted to make one um, point from a patient perspective and non-science. Um, when people ask me, you know, what did BRCA2 mean to you and what is this whole BRCA thing? And I think what's really relevant now is to say, I didn't realize that knowing my BRCA status would affect my treatment options. And I just think that that's a big takeaway um, for patients to know. Um, sorry, I don't know why it's making that sound. Um, that I don't think there's really much more to say beyond that, that um, you know, if, if you know someone who's facing, that needs more options, um, that this might, their BRCA, knowing their BRCA status obviously um, might make a difference. I think and I think pre-existing conditions, that having cancer is a much more serious pre-existing condition. And although there is a risk that we don't know what's happening politically, it could save your life if you are found to have a BRCA mutation. It, it could prevent cancer. And as Laura says, it can inform the treatment so that you get a better outcome. Uh, you get a more appropriate treatment for your cancer rather than somebody else's cancer. And you know, my father would not be alive uh, had he not known that he had BRCA mutation and had we not insisted that he is likely going to respond to a, a platinum-based chemotherapy, which was at that time not used for pancreatic cancer. And so this has clearly saved his life, and I think and that's why I feel relatively strongly about, uh, you know, we do act on knowing whether someone has a mutation. So I think that kind of takes us full circle and really was the goal of tonight's event was really to make sure that we keep the conversation going because if we know we have a BRCA mutation, we have so many better screening methods now and treatments and preventative strategies than we didn't used to. So um, I really hope this was informative for everyone tonight um, and we're available for questions. I don't know if Laurel was going to say one last thing and we really, really appreciate everyone's time this evening and thank you to all the panelists. I really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. And again, we'd like to thank the the UCSF Helen Diller um, Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Center for BRCA Research, UCSF Imaging, as well as the, the Avon Breast Center at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital who brought their mammo van tonight. Um, the support has been phenomenal, and um, you've made a huge difference in the awareness profile of those in this room, as well as the hundreds of thousands that were exposed to some of the outreach that happened as a result of this event. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.